0: talk radio prepare yourself okay let's go
1: this is veg talk radio
0: and welcome once again to another exciting episode of veg talk radio my name is Jay along with my beautiful wife Elena this week on episode number seven we are talking about every argument against veganism and also coming up a little bit later on we're gonna be talking about the ill effects of plastic in our environment plastic in our fish, plastic in our food, everything that's, it is incredible, the proliferation of plastic and how it's uh, having an adverse effect on our environment and the way we live. But first, uh, the first part of the show, we're going to be talking about every argument against veganism. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been uh, diving in deep into finding out, you know, the common arguments against what veganism is. uh, And it's, We get uh, excuses, anything from, this is my personal choice, it's a legal cultural thing, animals are bred for this, Uh, who cares if we're herbivores or omnivores, hey, our ancestors did it, uh, animals eat other animals, so why can't we? All of these things came up uh, as typical excuses, uh, as arguments against veganism. But then uh, we came across an incredible... Uh, speech done by Mr. Ed Winters. You may be familiar with him because he's known as Earthling Ed on YouTube, and uh, he is a tremendous educator, a vegan educator, public speaker, and content creator based in London, UK. Uh, Earthling Ed is the co-founder and co-director of Surge, an animal rights organization determined to create a world where compassion towards all non-human animals is the norm. In 2016, uh, Surge founded the official Animal Rights March, which succeeded in growth from uh, 2,500, I think, in 2016 to 28,000 participants across the across the world. In 2017, Earthling Ed, aka Ed Winters, produced the documentary Land of Hope and Glory and launched an ongoing moving activism project, the Big Vegan Activism Vant, is what it was called, and it still is. Uh, He has spoken at over, gosh, probably almost 40% of all the UK universities and has given some great speeches across the world. Now, in March of 2018, or actually just, uh, no, it's March 2019, actually, just a couple months ago, he spoke at Bath University on this very subject. Every argument against veganism. So, what we're going to do today here at Veg Talk Radio is let Ed do the talking because he did such a fantastic job with it. His speech, it runs about 19 minutes long. This is Earthling Ed and every argument against veganism.
2: So, when I say the word vegan to you, what do you think of? I'm sure for many of you, you think of oh, vegans. I mean, why can't they just live and let live? I personally have no problem with you being vegan, but can you not force your views and just respect my personal choice to eat animal products? For some of you, you might be thinking, "Ah, no, vegan. I could never be vegan. I love the taste of cheese far too much for that. And some of you might just be confused and thinking, but eating meets the circle of life. And after all, other animals eat other animals, so why can't I? These are a selection of the things that I used to say when someone said the word vegan to me. But I also used to say that vegans were crazy and that no one should ever go vegan. But now I am vegan. And so, how on earth did that happen? It's a question I often ask myself, and so to try and understand why it is that I'm now vegan, I want to go through all the main arguments that I used to make and show you why I changed my mind. And so, the first one is personal choice. Can we morally justify not being vegan by saying that it's our personal choice to consume animal products? Well, interestingly, yes, it is our personal choice to consume animal products, in the same way that it's our personal choice to abuse a dog or beat a cat. In essence, what I'm saying is that every action that we make is a choice that we personally choose to make. And so to imply that it's morally justifiable to use animals because it's a personal choice, would mean that every action that we as humans can make must also be morally justifiable because every action is a personal choice. And so, is it morally justifiable to randomly assault a stranger on the street? Is it morally justifiable to go to a shelter, rescue a dog, bring them home, and then abuse them yourself? No, of course it's not. Because those choices have a victim, someone who suffers negatively because of the personal choice that we have made. And so, consequently, the inclusion of a victim removes any possibility for moral justification. And besides, one of the reasons that I went vegan in the first place was for personal choice. The personal choice of the trillions of animals who are killed every single year, who have granted their choice, would just like to live their life without human-inflicted exploitation. Remember, animals don't willfully walk onto the kill floor of a slaughterhouse. They are forced there against their will. Any notion of choice has been removed for them. And so when we cite personal choice as a justification, whose personal choice are we considering other than our own? And if it is a choice, then why would we choose to be cruel? And so we might then think, yes, but the difference is these animals are bred for that purpose, which is why your example of abusing a dog is disingenuous, because that's just needless suffering. To which I would say, yes, but most of us find dog fighting to be morally abhorrent. Yet many dogs used in fighting are bred specifically for that purpose. Doesn't it make it acceptable. And so we might then say after that, yes, but dog fighting is illegal in this country. But farms and slaughterhouses are allowed under law, they are lawful practices. But does legality equal morality? Is something acceptable just because the law says so? I mean, if that was true, then dog fighting would be moral in the countries where it's legal. And if we apply that way of thinking, let's take it to a human situation. Is female genital mutilation a moral and acceptable practice in the countries where it's legally condoned? And let's take this argument and this line of thinking and apply it to the culture and tradition excuse as well. Is it justifiable to kill dogs during the Yulin Dog Meat Festival because the festival is a cultural event? Is it justifiable to slaughter dolphins in Japan or pilot whales in the Faroe Islands because those events are traditional? And again, using that example of female genital mutilation, is that a moral practice simply because it is cultural and traditional? Because the thing is, If we try to excuse using animals by saying, well, they form part of our culture and can be used in our traditions, we therefore have to make every cultural and traditional action and practice morally justifiable simply because they are cultural and traditional practices. And so we might get to the point where we say, well, that's all fair enough. But the thing is, we need to eat animal products to survive. In fact, they are optimal to our diet. And so the question becomes, are animal products a necessity? Now, the American Dietetic Association, which is the largest body of diet and nutrition professionals in the US, and is formed of over 100,000 certified practitioners, has categorically stated that a vegan diet is healthy, safe, and nutritionally adequate for all stages of life, including pregnancy, lactation, and infancy. This is also supported by the British Dietetic Association, as well as the NHS. Furthermore, there is extensive and conclusive research and evidence that links our consumption of animal products to some of our leading diseases and illnesses, including heart disease, certain forms of cancer, type 2 diabetes, strokes. The issue of thriving on a vegan diet is not a contentious one within the scientific community, and therefore, consuming animal products will be deemed an unnecessary action. And so let's progress the argument and say yes, but denying us of our nature. After all, we are omnivores. Have you seen our canine teeth? And we've always eaten meat. If your ancestors didn't eat meat, you wouldn't even be alive today. And so to begin with, many herbivorous animals do have canine teeth. Take the saber toothed deer as an example, which means that canines don't necessarily equate to meat eating. Furthermore, there's many people out there that believe that biologically and physiologically speaking, our bodies are more closely aligned to that of herbivorous animals rather than omnivorous animals. They point to the fact that our intestines are, on average, around three times longer than that of the average omnivore, the fact that our jaws, they grind side to side when we chew, like the jaws of herbivorous animals, and the fact that the hydrochloric acid in our stomach is comparatively weaker to carnivores but also omnivores as well. But personally, I find that entirely irrelevant. I don't think it really matters if we're herbivores or omnivores. I mean, just because we can physically do something doesn't mean that we are morally justified to do so. And because we don't have to eat meat, that means we can survive off plants. So biologically speaking, it makes no difference because we don't have to do it. And therefore, in the absence of necessity, there's the absence of justification as well. And so. I also think it's a little bit logically dishonest, a bit disingenuous that we claim that we're somehow built to be intrinsically designed to kill animals, yet so many of us would never want to kill the animal ourselves. And so if we wouldn't want to kill the animal ourselves, why is it acceptable to pay for someone else to do it on our behalf? I've always found it interesting when I try and show someone slaughterhouse footage, and they say, don't show me that. That's going to put me off my food. And I say, well, why? Why would seeing the process of how animal products arrive on your plate put you off consuming them? That seems to make little to no sense to me. And also, why is it that we get upset when we see footage of animals being killed in gas chambers or animals struggling to survive as they desperately try and flee from the kill floor they're being forced onto? Let's take that idea of ancestors and run with that for a moment, because our ancestors used to do lots of horrible things. They would rape they would murder? Are those actions automatically justified in society simply because our ancestors used to commit them? And besides, why would we ever base our morality on the actions of a primitive society where modern day notions of right and wrong didn't exist and in the absence of choice, consuming animals was a necessity for their survival? Let's take that argument because it's also pertinent when we look at the animals eat other animals excuse as well. Just because a lion kills and eats a gazelle doesn't mean we're justified to go to a supermarket and buy a steak. Lions are obligate carnivores, which means they need to eat meat to survive. As we've already established, we don't. And like before, why would we ever base our morality on the actions of wild animals who are consistently documented as doing things that we would never deem acceptable within our own country, or indeed, within our own society in general? And so the argument continues even further. And so let's run with the idea of necessity and survival, because I'm pretty sure that if a vegan was stranded on a desert island, right, and the only thing they had to eat was an animal, they would definitely do it. And so the reality is, no one knows how they'll react in an extreme survival situation. That's really the point of the argument, to make vegans seem hypocritical if they say they might eat the animal if they absolutely had to to survive. But there's been documented cases of humans cannibalizing to survive. There was a plane crash in the Andes, and the survivors of the plane crash lived because they cannibalized on the flesh of the dead passengers. And so cannibalism, in effect, became a justifiable act in that moment. Doesn't mean that cannibalism is a justifiable act in everyday society. Likewise, just because a vegan might consume an animal if they absolutely had to to survive, doesn't mean that consuming animal products is a morally justifiable act in everyday society. And so then the argument progresses further. And we say, yes, but consuming animals is part of the food chain. I mean, it's the circle of life. Everyone who is born must one day die. That's a natural process. That's symbiotic and harmonious to nature and the world that we live in. Our food chains are incredibly important. They symbolize part of the natural order, and they help maintain and form ecosystems. Fundamentally, they're there to ensure that population sizes of animals are kept consistent, and to ensure that the natural ecology is just well-balanced. But what we do to animals when we selectively breed them when we genetically modify them, when we artificially inseminate and forcibly impregnate them, when we take their babies away from them, when we mutilate them, when we exploit them for what they naturally produce for their own species, when we load them into trucks or trailers, take them to a slaughterhouse where we hang them upside down, cut their throat, and bleed them to death, has nothing to do with a natural order. And most importantly, it fits none of the criteria required to be labeled as a food chain. You see, the food chain that we cite is a human construct, created very conveniently to try and justify what is an entirely unnecessary act. It ignores the complexity, an interdependent web of life that form our natural ecosystems. It is an appeal to nature fallacy that overlooks our ability to make moral decisions as beings who possess moral agency. In essence, the food chain argument draws upon the idea of might makes right. The belief that because you have the ability to, to physically exploit someone else, you're somehow justified to do so as well. And the circle of life all that refers to is two moments of our existence that are certain our birth and our death. Everyone who's born must one day come full circle and die. But what happens between those areas of certainty is variable and it has nothing to do with a preordained circle of life. If we run with that argument, we'd be morally excused to harm anyone at any time in any manner that we so please. You'd be morally excused to murder an animal or indeed murder a human as well, running with that logic. And so let's move this on to a more practical note, because if the world went vegan, well, what would we do with all the animals? We can't just release billions of animals into the wild. That'd be devastating for the natural ecology. And, of course, it would. But what we have to understand is that animal agriculture runs on a system of supply and demand, meaning that when we buy a product, we demand that product be supplied. Now, Farmers will only breed animals into existence that they can sell. They're not going to breed them if they can't sell them because that's just not economically viable in the slightest. And so the shift to veganism will, of course, be very gradual. And so, as the number of vegans increases, the number of animals being bred into existence will decrease proportionally. And if, and of course it is an if, but if we ever get that vegan world, that vegan world will be a world where farmers are simply not breeding animals into existence anymore, and as such, we'll never be faced with the dilemma of having to either release billions of animals into the wild or take them to a slaughterhouse, so we simply discard their bodies. But okay. Okay. All right. I see what you're doing, I see where you're going, But this is the problem. You see, vegans are hypocrites. Haven't you heard that small animals sometimes die in the production of crops, and therefore you can't even be 100% vegan? Now, it's true. Animals like caterpillars and worms do die in the production of crops, and we also can't guarantee that small mammals like mice and rats don't sometimes get killed as well. But the difference is that notion of intention and certainty. You see, when we buy an animal product, We're intentionally paying for someone to cause the suffering and death of an animal. That is a certainty. When we buy a plant product, we're not. And so think about it this way. If you're driving down the road and you accidentally run over a dog, morally, that is not the same as if you were driving down the road, saw a dog, actively pursued them until you run them over. But the philosophy and ideology behind the argument that it's morally justifiable to buy animal products because sometimes small animals die in crop production adheres to the idea that, morally speaking, accidentally hitting the dog is the same as intentionally hitting the dog. And so what about plants? Because plants are alive as well, so why don't we consider plants within our circle of moral compassion? And so plants are, of course, alive. But they're not conscious they don't have a brain, central nervous system, or pain receptors, but also, more importantly, it can take up to 16 kilograms of plants to produce one kilogram of animal flesh, which means that vastly more plants are used in the production of a non-vegan diet than a vegan diet. So if we care about plants, logically and morally, we're still obliged to be vegan. And this also ties in nicely with what we were just saying about animals being killed in crop production, because if more crops are used in a non-vegan diet, that means if we care about small animals being killed in crop production, we are again logically and morally obliged to still be vegan. But what about soy farming? Because soy farming is devastating for the environment, is it not? Soy farming is terrible for the environment. But that's only because 70 to 85% of all the soy that is grown is fed to livestock animals. In fact, it's predicted that as little as 6% could be used for human consumption. And that's not even about vegans eating tofu, because soya is ubiquitous amongst nearly everyone's diet. It's found in breads in cereals, sauces, chocolates, and so much more as well. So then we say, but do we have to be vegan? I mean, vegetarian? I get it. But animals don't die in the production of dairy and eggs, so surely being vegetarian is enough? Simply put, no, it's not. In the egg industry, Male chicks are useless because they won't produce eggs, and they also won't grow to be the same size as the chickens that we kill for meat, which means that as soon as they are born, they're thrown into a giant macerator, minced up alive, or they're thrown into a gas chamber and gassed to death. All egg-laying hens as well will be sent to a slaughterhouse after around 72 weeks of life, when their bodies are fully depleted from being overly exploited and they're no longer profitable to the farmer. In the dairy industry, Dairy cows will only produce milk to feed their children. They are mammals, just as we are. And so this means that farmers forcibly impregnate dairy cows year after year to ensure a continuous cycle and production of milk is there for him to sell, or her to sell. When the dairy cow gives birth, the baby will be taken away from the mother normally within 24 hours of birth. Male dairy cows are useless to the dairy industry. And so this means that approximately 95,000 male dairy calves are killed shortly after, the, after birth in this country alone, normally by being shot in the head. This is because they won't produce milk, and are sometimes not profitable enough to be sold on for beef. The female calves will be raised, and they too will join the herd, where they will be forcibly impregnated year after year, and all dairy cows are sent to the slaughterhouse as well. Which means the dairy and eggs are pretty much the same as meat, but potentially even worse, because the animals suffer for longer, and yet they still are killed in the same way. And so let's talk about humane slaughter. This is something we often hear when we talk about the killing of animals in slaughterhouses. Now, the word humane means having or showing compassion or benevolence, which means that humane slaughter is, of course, an oxymoron, because you can never compassionately or benevolently take the life of an animal who does not wish to die and who does not have to die. And so that brings us on to our final excuse, taste. And so I want to leave you with a couple of questions. What has higher value, taste or life? Do we require more than sensory pleasure alone to morally justify an action? Remember that a meal to us lasts only a matter of minutes, but that meal has cost an animal their entire life. We take their life for a moment that is fleeting, a meal that we forget about almost as soon as we have consumed it. I used to think that vegans forced their views. I said this regularly. But one day I realized that nothing can ever be as forceful as taking the life of someone who does not wish to die, taking the life of an animal who does not wish to die. And so in the end, that's why I became vegan, because when put into perspective, my arguments held no veracity, no credibility, no validity. Fundamentally, I called myself an animal lover, yet I paid for animals to suffer and die on my behalf. Through all of the excuses I used to make, I realized that my values contradicted my actions, and deep down, I could find no real justification. Thank you so much for listening.
0: That was Earthling Ed, Ed Winters, who recorded at Bath University in March of 2019 a great speech talking about every argument against veganism. If you have not checked him out on YouTube, by all means do so. He also, in October of 2018, opened up Unity Diner, it's a nonprofit vegan diner in London where all of the profits uh, go back to uh, helping the animals. He also launched a brand new podcast called The Disclosure Podcast back in February. So if you haven't checked him out, by all means, please do so. Now, coming up after the uh, news, we're gonna be talking about plastics. You know, those dreaded plastics. That's coming up. This is VegTalk Radio News for the week of May 19th, 2019. Miyoko's Kitchen amicably settled a lawsuit filed against the vegan creamery in October. The suit, brought by New York plaintiff Jasmine Brown, alleged that the vegan brand basks in dairy's halo by using the term butter on its cultured vegan butter product, which overtly states that the cashew-based product is made from plants— We have been asked not to comment on it besides saying it was dismissed due to the satisfaction of both parties. It was truly a good outcome. That's about all I can say. This is according to company founder Miyoko Skinner. Despite the craziness over Miyoko's use of the term butter, Skinner has no plans to change the company's labeling standards. Food giant Dan One North America's plant-based product business could surpass its dairy-based yogurt business within the next 10 years. This according to Dan One CEO Emmanuel Faber, its plant-based category, which includes vegan brand Silk and So Delicious currently generates about a billion dollars in sales. This is uh, compared to $2 billion in dairy, but it's growing faster in demand for vegan alternatives as they continue to rise. Penetration is very high and it's widely adopted already, this according to Faber, who said it at a recent company event in Barcelona. Financial institution Robobank estimates that 200 million pigs will perish this year in China due to the African swine flu which amounts to about uh, one-third of the country's pig population. The virus first appeared in China in August and became an epidemic by December, spreading to other regions such as Cambodia and Vietnam. Last month, while the Chinese government slated that uh, ASF was under control, animals across the region continued to die fashion retailer H&M will be phasing out conventional cashmere from its clothing collections following an expose of the industry's cruel practices by PETA. PETA and Asia shared some footage from cashmere farms in China and Mongolia. The two countries responsible for about 90% of the world's cashmere production. This has been VegTalk Radio News for the week of May 19th, 2019. okay and we're back with veg talk radio episode number seven we're glad we're here or you're here too and my name is jay along with my beautiful wife elena and today we're talking about plastics single-use plastics what can you do to actually begin the process of elimination and or just discontinue its use completely uh or at least lower its use and Elena has done a lot of research on this particular topic and she has uh, an article that you'd like to discuss.
1: Yeah, So I uh, I ran across um, a statistic that was very, very um, disheartening and it's our responsibility to figure out how to reverse this and I found it off a tree hugger and um, uh, an individual by Melissa uh, Breyer had written an article all the way back in 2015. Uh, and I just happened to, uh, find it, um, doing searches and it said that, um, the headline is plastic will be found in 99% of seabirds by
0: 2050. 99%? 99%. And so we're talking, you know, not that far away.
1: Well, we're looking within 30 years. Yeah. So, uh, an analysis reveals that plastic in many seabirds stomachs now will get worse and there are simple measures, uh, could, uh, could change that course. Um, from the world gone terribly wrong file, researchers from Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization and Imperial College of London have found that the majority of the world's seabirds, including albatrosses, shearwaters, and penguins, have plastics in their gut. Um, mm-hmm. Looking into published studies since the early 1960s, researchers have found plastic, including that from bags, bottle caps, and synthetic clothes, which have washed up uh, into, washed into the ocean from urban rivers, rivers, sewers, and waste deposits is increasing. The common, is increasingly common in seabirds' stomachs. In 1960, less than 5% of the seabirds have plastic in their stomachs. They've put that number at 90% today.
0: That's crazy.
1: Isn't that nuts? Yeah, I will. yeah. And, and, we, and we're to blame. It's, it's just as simple as that. Uh, uh, the boor- birds mistakenly uh, mistake the c- brightly colored plastic bits for food and accidentally swallow them, and it leads to gut impaction, weight loss, and sometimes it's fatal, and I suspect it's becoming more s- fatal than not- than anything else at this point. Researchers found that plastics have the greatest impact on wildlife where they gather in the southern ocean, in a band around the southern edges of Australia, South. Africa and South America, uh, and it's really something that we can make a difference. And you're like, well, what does it matter if it's in Australia or South Africa? The The ecosystem is a delicate balance, mm-hmm. and when, when we get in the way of that balance, catastrophic things happen, and it's our responsibility to start Oh, really, just eliminating plastic use. I understand that 100% elimination. We don't have we don't have the answers on that yet, but every one of us has a responsibility to make a difference, and there's simple changes, right. just simple changes. Um,
0: and considering that you know it can take thousands of years for plastic bags and styrofoam containers absolutely. to, to absolutely or decompose. It's absolutely,
1: it's crazy. I found um, at the Center for Biological Diversity. Um, what the problems with plastic bags, these are single-use plastic bags. You go to the grocery store, you buy three apples, you put it in a bag. Mm-hmm. Um, a- almost all of our produce, I-, I-, I am frustrated that there are less options in most grocery stores for things that are not in plastic. That would- and I want to figure out a way to start being that voice for that, even just in my local marketplace. There are, some, there are 10 facts about single-use plastic bags will just talk about bags, not even the water bottles and all of this stuff. Americans use 10 billion plastic bags a year, which requires 12 million barrels of oil to manufacture. It only, it only takes about 14 plastic bags for the equivalent of the gas required to drive one mile. 14 plastic bags. Wow. If you think about it, the average family of four you can have plastic you can have 14 plastic bags in your shopping cart in no time flat
0: oh easy the way they pack uh, packages now sometimes there's like your eggs go into one single you know i'm assuming i don't eat eggs yeah we don't but i'm just saying that i've seen you know customers in front of us at aldi's or what have you and they'll put a single thing of eggs in a a piece of plastic and
1: it's just crazy just crazy Uh, the average american family takes home about fifteen hundred plastic shopping bags a year according to waste management only one percent of plastic bags are returned for recycling
0: nine percent according to the u.n yeah there's a report out last year
1: right this means that the average family only recycles about 15 bags a year and the rest ends up in landfills as litter up to eighty percent of the ocean plastic pollution enters the ocean from the land One in three leatherback sea turtles have been found with plastic in their stomachs.
0: And did you see that one video, I did anyway, uh, where that, I think it was one of those big sea turtles that had, uh, from birth, had a uh, plastic ring, one of those little uh, pop can ring, uh, and it was on there, and and they showed the video of it and how it just, the body formed around the piece of plastic. It was crazy.
1: It's so sad. Plastic bags are used an average of 12 minutes.
0: That's it. And then they're thrown away.
1: Yeah. And it takes more than five over 500 years for a plastic bag to degrade in a landfill. And unfortunately, the bags don't break down completely, but instead become photo photo degrade, becoming microplastics that absorb toxins and continue to pollute the environment. I I had been, I think I talked to, I don't know, a few episodes ago about um, plastic and fish. Oh, yeah. I mean, we live in the Great Lakes region and uh, there is plastic in all of the fish.
0: Not to mention PFAS, so just don't eat the fish.
1: It, it, it's it's so sad, just so sad, because it's really, it's post-World War II when plastics became big in the 50s, it became the disposable generation, and we have a responsibility to clean up, period, every one of us, and there are simple things to do. I'll give you some examples. Um, this was, uh, uh, it came from the um, Green Education Foundation, Tips for Using Less Plastic, right now easiest thing you can do Um, did you know that 30 million tons of plastic waste is generated in the u.s and that was in 2009 and only seven percent is recovered and this is just crazy stop using plastic straws
0: oh there's one big one yes
1: there are restaurants that are starting to um, advertise uh, i've even seen it locally where they no longer will dispense plastic straws
0: yep I'll give you a you know, you, it, straw.
1: if a straw is a must it, you can buy stainless steel straws or even glass straws i haven't used a glass straw yet but i have used stainless steel uh, and it's it's simple it, yeah. it's just it's simple use a reusable produce bag
0: yeah that's what one uh, nature's path said too what we can do about uh yeah reduce the use of plastics it's
1: easy you 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 use them Um, You know, they're very lightweight, so they're not going to add a lot of weight to whatever you're purchasing. If you're fortunate enough to be in an area that has a bulk food store uh, that allows you to bring your own containers in, Mm -hmm. uh, that's wonderful. Go to the farmer's markets. uh, It helps local businesses. Bring your own bags. Super, super easy. Give up gum. Gum is made of a synthetic rubber, a.k.a. plastic. Buy boxes instead of bottles. Um, Simple things. Laundry detergent. Uh, they can. There are detergents that come in cardboard, which is more easily recycled than plastic. Mm-hmm. Purchase food like cereal, pasta, and rice from bulk bins and fill a reusable bag or container. You can save money and uh, unnecessary packaging. Absolutely. Reuse containers for storing leftovers and shopping in bulk. Use a reusable bottle or mug for your beverages, even when ordering from a to-go shop you might have to do some convincing but there's no reason for the throwaway you know it,
0: right. if it can't degrade and be informed too about what is recyclable in your area i'm amazed even right here in michigan that some things are not recyclable that i thought were so you have to be you have to understand what is recyclable and what's not
1: absolutely uh, bring your own container for takeout uh or your reg, uh, your restaurant doggy bag, since many restaurants uh, use styrofoam. I, I know that there's probably going to be some code that says they can't do it because of health department or something. Right. But if you can find, I really am pleased when I uh, have an opportunity to go to a restaurant and they uh, will provide me my leftovers in uh, a recyclable container. I, I think that's awesome. Uh, use matches instead of disposable plastic lighters or invest in a refillable metal lighter. Um, avoid buying frozen foods uh, because most of their packages are plastic. I think that um, you just have to be as diligent as possible with that um, because, you know, the people, I buy frozen food. All
0: right.
1: And it's hard to get around it, but the more we make noise about things, the more the market, if we demand it, the market's going to, it'll stand up and, and take notice. So be vocal about it. Uh, even those that appear to be cardboard or c- are coated in a thin layer of plastic. Um, don't use plasticware at home. That's completely unnecessary. Be sure to request restaurants. Uh, uh, ask them not to pack uh, any in your takeout bag. Uh, ask your local grocer to take your plastic containers, like for berries, tomatoes, et cetera, back. If you shop at a farmer's market, they can refill it for you, mm-hmm. and that saves them that saves them cost, too. Helps keep the prices down. Um, the EPA m- estimates that 7.6 billion pounds of disposable diapers are discarded in the U.S. each year. Yeah. I, I, there's a movement to use cloth diapers. Uh, it reduces your baby's carbon footprint, and it saves money. I know that there's more work involved in it,
2: uh, yeah, but it's a
1: you, short period of time that you're dealing with it. Yeah. In the long run, you want your baby to be potty <laughs> trained. Is it, <laughs> is it, it s-
0: still true that the average baby is, what, 7,000 diapers?
1: Oh, I, I, you know what? I can't remember now, but it was just ridiculous. I know it when was just our crazy.
0: And yeah, when our son was young and we were using diapers, it, uh, it, the yeah. average baby uses 7,000 Yeah, it was just diapers. crazy. Yeah.
1: Um, make fresh squeezed uh, juice or eat fruit instead of buying juice in plastic bottles. It's healthier and it's better for the environment. Uh, you can make your own cleaning products uh, using essential oils and, and basic uh, in, items that you have in your kitchen, believe it or not. Uh, they're less toxic and they eliminate the need for multiple plastic uh, bottles of cleaner. Pack your lunch in reusable containers and bags. We do that all the time. Both you and I do that. Yep. Um, opt out for like Uh, opt for fresh fruits and veg uh, instead of projects that come in single-serve cups. It's really easy to to get things. um, I I spend most of my time on the weekends uh, preparing for our work week. Uh, It's easy enough to have containers lined up and cutting up your fruit and veg uh, meal prep. I talk about it. It's uh, something that I'm working, I, I just work diligently at becoming better at it allows us to create much less waste, and it's healthy food. Yeah. Uh, another one that they had was use a razor or replaceable blades instead of a disposable razor. Um, every single thing that you touch just about has plastic in it nowadays, and it's important to, to be cognizant of it. You know, use mason jars for containers. There's a big movement uh, about uh, food and plastic uh, and its toxicity. Yep. So there are other options. You know. Sometimes we have to learn from our our history, and prior to the 50s, there wasn't plastic like there is today.
0: Yeah, we had, uh, well, we had TV dinners, but it was aluminum foil back then, if you remember. I was not, I wasn't a child (laughs) of the 50s. I'm sorry, I'm not dating myself, but, but, you know, I was a child of the 70s and 80s. But anyway, um, so there's some positive news uh, because there are several countries, states, and uh, uh, local districts that are banning the use of single-use plastic, including Peru, which restricts the single-use plastics. They started doing that this year. San Diego also bans styrofoam food and drink containers. That was also goes into effect this year. Uh, Washington, D.C., the plastic straw ban begins. I know some people say what are you doing by just banning plastic straws? I mean, come on, really? Can you think of anything else better? But actually, it is actually because of the number of uh, waste that is created from straws. That's why a lot of these places are doing this. Um, And single-use plastic named word of the year in 2018. Single use. Okay. So those are just some fun facts.
1: Okay. Um, Other things to, to think about that are easy. Give up bottled water.
0: Yes, buy a reverse osmosis system for your house.
1: Well, yeah, and if you even it, it, you have to start thinking about um, how you can reduce things I, and and water bottles, that uh, was a real simple, easy fix. Buy a good solid water bottle, reusable. Ours happen have, have to be the stainless steel, and it's thermal insulated, so you can uh, put uh, you know hot or cold beverages in it, mm-hmm. and they're easy to keep clean. Uh, and I, I, it, I just cringe when I, I am offered a plastic water bottle.
0: And are and those little, uh, those, uh, steel, stainless steel mugs actually fit on our bikes too. So that's kind of
1: nice. <laughs> um, reusable shopping bags are the easiest, just the easiest quick fix. Right. Uh, I, I have, I don't know, a couple dozen of them in the back of my car, in my trunk. Uh, it takes a little getting used to, you know, I, sometimes I have to put it in my front seat to remember uh, but there's, that's such a simple way to get rid of uh, single-use plastics, and it's just—I mean, honestly, when I get a plastic bag, it's just me being lazy,
0: right? So and those, those so are just, just
1: easy, easy things to do.
0: Yeah, just some simple things that uh, that make it real easy for you to kind of reduce uh, the use of single-use plastics. So absolutely. All right.
1: Well, then get out there, and you know. Reduce the use of plastic and recycle where you can.
0: Yep, exactly. That's the name of the game. Plastic's bad. Okay. So until next week, my name is Jay and that's Elena. And we will see you next week right here on Veg Talk Radio. Veg Talk Radio. This has been a presentation of Veg Talk Radio. To learn more about veganism, a plant-based lifestyle, our podcasts, blog, and more, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. For questions, comments, or interview requests, feel free to drop us a line at podcasts at vegtalkradio.com, and be sure to bookmark our website at www.vegtalkradio.com. Nothing artificial, just pure vegan talk. We are VegTalk Radio.